Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Uh, We're going to get into 13 verses, 13 of the last verses of the Sermon on the Mount today. This is Jesus's The longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus in the Gospels is found in Matthew 5 through 7. We've been in this for a few weeks because it's it's an amazing sermon. Jesus was such a powerful communicator. And in this sermon, you find all kinds of different ingredients that even modern communicators, when you read it, you appreciate it. You see at times how blunt he was and at times how tactful he was. He used perfect illustrations. In other words, he would often give them a story or an image or a metaphor that helped drive the point home in powerful ways that stuck with them. And it was, at the end of the day, it's very basic and very simple. And the whole point of his sermon is he wanted to tell people what it really means to be a disciple. Here's what disciples do. Here's how disciples think. And here's what makes my disciples different from everybody else in the world. And he described it in terms of entering into his kingdom with him being, with, with him being the king and people being his followers. And he described, here's how our culture, how we live and move and act and make decisions in our kingdom is different from the way the kingdom of the world teaches us to live. And it's very basic. He covers everything from how to pray, how to give, how to worship, how to serve, how to treat your friends, how to treat your enemies, how to treat insiders in the kingdom, how to treat outsiders, what to do when life is good, what to do when life is challenging, what our characters should be like, marriage, divorce, finances, uh, relationships between parents and kids. He covers so many things in this sermon in such a short period of time. And we've been just taking our time through it to pause and make sure we're grabbing the big idea that Jesus is giving him because the sermon is complete. If you listen to the sermon and you not just listen, if you think about what he says, it's going to do two things in your heart. In some areas, you're going to feel the Holy Spirit kind of patting you on the back and saying, daughter, son, you're growing in this area. You're doing well in this area. You, 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 there's improvement. And then it's going to do nothing. It's going to confront some stuff in our heart that's out of alignment with the way that God wants us to live. And so, as I told you a moment ago, we're in the concluding part of Jesus' sermon. Now, the only way I know that is because the sermon has always already been preached, it's been recorded for us, and I've read to the end, and I know that as the little bouncing ball is following the sermon along, we're like right here. The original hearers didn't have a cue that Jesus was getting ready to close. Jesus did not to say, as I... Jesus did not say to his listeners, now, as I get ready to close, if the worship team could please come to the instruments, and here's a story and a song and a poem, and then we're going to back. They didn't know the end was, of the sermon was there, but we know. And now, why is that important to us today? Because it allows us to understand why Jesus picked these topics and these ideas to come at this part of the message. So we're only going to look at 13 verses today. In these 13 verses, Jesus is going to bring conclusion to the main body of his message, and he is going to begin the final remarks. He's going to conclude his teaching on how to be a disciple by talking to us how we should think about our father and how we should think about our neighbor. And then he's going to begin the final paragraph or two 
by also talking to us about how we should think about gates, G-A-T-E-S, and what we should think about our teachers. And the point that he's driving home is he's going to kind of put, a, put, a, put an ending bracket on here's the basic things you need to know about what it means to be my disciple. And the conclusion of his message, if I could water it down, or not water it down, but if I could summarize in his statement, it is you must respond to the sermon I just preached. There's exactly two ways you can respond. You're going to respond positively or negatively. Here's what a positive response looks like. Here's what a negative response looks like. Here's the benefits of a positive response. Here's the consequences of a negative response. Choose wisely because how you respond to this sermon determines your eternal destiny. Now that's pretty bold. You've never heard me say, you know what, I think the message that I just preached to you is so important that how you respond to what I just said is going to determine your eternal destiny. Not because that's not necessarily true sometimes, but as a human being standing where I stand, even those words coming out of my mouth seem a little audacious. But Jesus was different. He is the word. I'm repeating words that every good preacher on their best day is just a repeater. We're not coming up with new stuff. We're repeating what's been said, hopefully in a way that helps you understand and it sticks with you. But Jesus was different. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. John described him. He is the word, and he was with God at the beginning. And so when Jesus speaks, the end of his sermon is, I hope you listened to what I just said and you thought about it. And as you're thinking about it, I promise you, what you're hearing is confronting things in your heart that aren't right. And what you do in response to knowing that this message is showing you truth, that you know that you should be, that you're not, how you respond to that determines whether you're on a pathway to destruction or life. And here's what happens if you respond positively. And we'll get to that next week. Winds and waves will come and beat down your house and it won't fall because it's got a firm foundation. If you respond negatively, it confronts your heart and you say, that's not for me, I disagree, I don't like it, I'm not going to surrender, or anything in between, and you wanted a real broad response to that, the winds and the waves of life will still come and it'll beat down and it'll crumble with a great crash because you don't have the right foundation. So that's where we're going in this sermon. Let me read to you from the New International Version, and, and there's a lot I won't get to today. This passage is loaded with sentences that should all be their own four-part series, but we don't have all week for you to sit here and endure that. And so if you want some more of the research that I was able to do and follow through some of the background, um, make this more of a personally beneficial, robust Bible study for you, you can scan that QR code. It'll give you access to a PDF file that has all of my notes and then all of my sources where I looked. I just want you to be able to fact check your teachers. I think that's extremely important. And Jesus says you need to be aware. If you're going to respond to this, you need to be able to trust that what you're getting is as accurate as we humans can possibly get it. So uh, all of these ideas, you know, I can, I can show you where I pulled uh, my ideas from um, if you scan that, download it. But let me read to you Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 20. These 13 verses, I'll read it to you in the New International Version. I have my NLT Bible up here. That's why I'm not reading it directly out of here. Let me read it off the screen. Maybe you've heard some of these before. Ask, could you almost finish it if you didn't see it? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will, and what's the next verb? Knock, right? Ask, seek, knock. We've heard that before. Um, ask, seek, knock, and the door will be open to you. For, do you see that next word? Everyone. And sometimes you're thinking, you're already moving ahead and you're saying, well, if this is talking about prayer, 
And that as a disciple of Jesus, I should always ask God. And he's about to say, everyone who asks receives. I've asked God to answer prayers he hasn't answered yet. No, maybe it's just the response he's giving you isn't the one you were looking for. He's saying, wait. He's saying, not yet. He's saying, I can't tell you that right now. Well, I'm not receiving. No, you're receiving because everyone's receiving. Maybe just not the answer you wanted. But I will tell you the answer you're getting is his best response for your best. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, who goes, you know, starts with asking, and then when asking doesn't get traction, the one who actually gets physically involved, puts activity and effort into this pursuit of solution. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. This is all talking about the topic of prayer. Second time that Jesus brings up prayer in this sermon. Let's keep reading, verse, verse nine. Now he talks about fatherhood, which initially, when I planned out how to break up these passages, I wasn't even thinking that today would be Father's Day, but it's kind of cool that it lined up there. We get a little bit of what Jesus talks about fatherhood. He says, which of you disciples and listeners, if your son asks you for bread and you have bread to give him, which of you would give him instead a rock? Well, what's the obvious answer? Nobody would do that. No good dad or mom, if their kid asks them for bread and you have a loaf of bread there, says, you know what? I am going to give you something to eat. Hold on a second. And you go outside and you go into your driveway, you grab a handful of rocks and you put that between bread. And you say, here, here's some, you know, here's some boulder sandwich. Yeah, chew on that. Break your teeth. Get sick. No parent would do that. Jesus knows it's a rhetorical question. It's an extreme example. Or... If you have a child who asks you for fish, says, you know what, I'll get them. Oh, of course, sit down, close your eyes. I'm going to prepare your favorite fish. And they open up their size, there's a rattlesnake on their dinner plate. Nobody would do that. He says, so, if all of you listeners, even though you're evil, you're broken, you're not perfect, you're sinful, we've covered that already. If you broken people, even in your broken conscience, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much better is your father advantaged? How much more will your father in heaven, who is not evil, who is not broken, who is not sinful, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? So he's not saying that humans are morally incapable of doing good things even though we're broken. He's simply saying if you in your broken state are still capable of doing good things, that should be an arrow that points us to how much better and greater our Father can be counted on to give good gifts. In other words, he's saying it is in your Father's nature to give because it's in a broken Father's nature to give. How much more your righteous father, it's in his nature to give. So ask, seek, knock with that confidence. Verse 12. So in everything, maybe you've heard this one. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That, we have a nickname for that verse. What do we call it? The golden rule. We'll talk in a moment about where that term came from. Um, and now that ends right there. If I would have done a better job of breaking up these passages, we should have ended the sermon at 12. But I didn't. I went on to 13. This starts the concluding remarks. 
And I only know that because I read to the end. Now he's going to talk to them about what to do and how to respond. Their choices. You've heard the sermon. You've heard everything you need to hear. Now you need to think about it and to decide what you're going to do about what you just heard. And here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to hear the sermon and enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Verse 14. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And now... That he's told them how to get into the kingdom. He knows right away there's going to be some other people. They're going to talk to you about how to get into the kingdom. But they're going to be inaccurate. They're going to misrepresent the two roads. How wide or narrow they are. And about how you get there. And so he knows this is so important. That as you're thinking about what the sermon you heard. Watch out for false prophets. Because there are other people who are going to tell you. That they have the solution to what I just described. They're coming to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves, verse 16. By their fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Basically what he's saying is a tree has, is unable to disguise itself. A wolf can disguise itself, but a tree can't. And he's saying the way you determine a false prophet from someone who's a reliable teacher is by their fruit. What their life produces, what their teaching produces, and what their followers are like. Every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Trees can't disguise themselves. An apple tree can't throw you off by growing bananas. Can't do it. But a wolf could put on a costume. Okay? Trees can't put on costumes. It won't work. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So we're going to unwind some of this together today. We're going to look at four things Fathers, neighbors, gates, teachers. And I'll give you one sentence for each. There's a whole lot more, but let me give you one that jumped out to me this time through. Okay, here's my statement for, that I offer you in terms of, how would Jesus like you to think about God as a father? Here's what I, here's what I believe that we could summarize. God is a good father who invites us, his disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus, to persist in our prayers to him because it's in his nature to give. Jesus wants us to understand God as your personal and good father. And he wants you, as a result of that understanding, to feel absolutely comfortable and relaxed and unintimidated, not only to ask him, but to seek him, and ultimately even to knock on his door in your prayers, because you know in your heart, he's a good father. He's a giving father. This is not an encumbrance to him or an inconvenience to him. I can do this. So the, these verses tend to tumble out pretty Familiar, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he gives you that pretty hilarious illustration we already talked about. Which of you broken dads or moms, if your child asks you for a sandwich, will give them rocks? Or if they ask you for fish sticks, will give them a live cobra on their plate? None of you would do that. If your child asks for something that they need, you'd give them your best. It's also a good question, but what if your child asks for a snake? A good dad wouldn't give him a snake. 
child asked for a rock sandwich, you wouldn't give your child a rock sandwich because sometimes a good parent's withhold what their children thinks is best for them because the parent knows better. And that's what makes them a good father. So you need to understand that today, even when I teach this, and I could tell in the first service when I started talking about God being a good father, you get, I get a lot of blank looks. It doesn't move us as much. We've had now 2,000 years of understand we're having the new testament in front of us and telling us that we should think of god when we pray as our father in fact the first time jesus talked to these people about praying to god he has to uproot whatever old ideas they had about prayer and put new ones in there because he says when you pray verse chapter six don't pray like the do you remember the other group of people the pharisees other translations use a h word hypocrites and then there's another one that uses a p word pagans Here's what Jesus is telling you. Christians aren't the only people who pray. Did you know that? I would challenge you, and I haven't done the study in about a year and a half since I last taught on, on the Lord's Prayer, but at the time that I did, I had looked up a statistic that was done, a survey done by the Pew Research Institute, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was somewhere between 75 and 85% of, of respondents to a survey of American citizens, regardless of their religious background, somewhere between 75, three quarters of the people in our country say, I pray, but less than half identify as Christians. So what that means is there are more people than people who identify as Christians who pray to God. But they pray what makes us as disciples different. Jesus wants you to understand is don't pray like the pagans, the hypocrites. They think they'll be heard because of their resume. They think they'll be heard because of their many, many, many words and all the stuff that they've done. They think they'll be heard because they, God is obligated to respond to them. But when you pray, pray to your Father. Go into your room, close your door, pray to your Father, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you openly. And when he gives us the example prayer, the Lord's Prayer, how does that begin? Our Father. And for some of us, that's become something we just put, we can almost pray it absent-mindedly. But Jesus didn't intend that to happen. Jesus, who is God's only begotten son, tells the rest of God's adopted sons and daughters that when we go to him to ask him of anything, when we're seeking him for something, when we're knocking on his door to persist, like, God, I've asked and I've sought and I still haven't, I need to knock, I need a response from you. We're supposed to always do that, filtering that interaction through the idea that he is dad. He's my father. He's not a landlord. He's not some distant being that can't be disturbed, so I have to pray to his mom or one of his saints, and they'll get us on the waiting list and bring us an answer. Jesus wants his listeners, his followers, to understand God is to be seen as your father who is a good father. And every time we pray, we need to have that in our mind as our basis. And this was revolutionary. I would encourage you, study the Old Testament, and here's what you'll find. The Israelites, the Jews in the Old Testament, never related to God as father. Ever. The only time we see God uh, described as father in the Old Testament, it's very rare. He's just the father of a nation. He's father of a, of a tribe or a group of people. But he's never a personal father to people. So when Jesus is telling his listeners, think of God as your personal father, that would have blown their minds. And it's why I see the blank look in your eyes. You're like, yeah, I've heard this so many times. I will tell you this, though. As you follow Jesus, as you get to know God, you'll come through seasons of your life, and I promise you of this. You'll come through seasons of life where you've 
your understanding of God's going to be challenged because he's going to do some things you don't expect of him or not do some things you do expect of him. Have you been there yet? Right? A circumstance, an event, a crisis, a trouble comes into your life. In the life of somebody you know. And you may not doubt God's existence, but you question either why he allows it to happen or why he didn't prevent it. You start to, to question those things. And it bubbles up in your heart. Or you're seeking God for an answer to something. You need a solution. You need wisdom. You need something to change. You need something to say the same. You need something to start or something to stop. And you ask. And you don't see a response or the opposite happens. I promise you this. Every day that you spend and every month, every year that you spend on this journey towards Christ-likeness, you're going to encounter seasons and moments where who you think God is is going to be challenged. What you think about him is going to be challenged. Those are good moments for us. It's healthy. But one of the writers that I read about this, he wrote a book back in the 1920s, a guy by the name of Emmett Fox. I don't know how many books he wrote, but I happened to be able to have one gifted to me, and I was looking through it. And, and one of the things that he, he lands on in this whole passage, he says, every one of the mysteries that we have about our relationship to God, if you squeeze on these verses about God being a good father, there is a solution to that mystery within understanding that he's our dad. And that he's a good dad. It starts to explain why we can trust his goodness even when the results or what we're seeing going on in our life seems incompatible with a good father. We say, but I trust his heart. He simply must see something different that I don't see yet. And rather than spending 15 minutes on this, one of the statements that helps me rest in God's goodness as a father is this. Everything is necessary that he gives and nothing is necessary that he withholds and you have to kind of carry those things in tension because what we'll learn what, what we learn about ourselves is that we usually think we know what's best for us and when we start to get to know God we carry what we think is best for us and that forms what we ask him for and what we seek, and what we knock. God, here is what I need, what I want, the way I want this to play out, and I'm going to lay this at your feet. And what you learn about yourself later on is sometimes what I'm asking him for might not actually be for my best. I just think it's for my best, but I'm not mature enough to know otherwise. And what makes a good, good father? Jesus plays on this. A good father, even in our broken world, is someone who is a giver by nature, who when their kids ask them for something that they have, that is for their kids best, they don't hold back, they give it. A good father, most of us say a good father is someone who has the ability to give their best for their kids' best. But a good father is also a father who is willing to withhold from his children even if they ask if it's not for their best. You have to have both. The assumption that we can't always make as fathers is that father doesn't always know best. Man, when I learned, and, when I learned 12 years ago that my wife was pregnant with our oldest, I started thinking about what it would be like to be a dad. And I didn't think, man, I hope I really mess this up. I thought, I, 
man, I want to be a good dad. I need to know what's best for my kids. And I, I, can I be transparent enough to say that there's a lot of times I do think simply because of experience, age, wisdom, I walk with the Lord, I know better for them than what they think they need. But can I also tell you, I've run into moments where I've had to go to the Lord and say, God, I don't know what is best for my children in this situation. Dealing with bullies at school. Part of me just wants to give me their names and their numbers. Lord, what is best? I'm disadvantaged because sometimes I, as their dad, I want to give them what's best for them, but sometimes I don't even know what's best. How much more can we trust our good God who always knows what's best? So what are we supposed to do? He says, persist in your prayers. Jesus commands us. Ask, seek, knock. Do you understand those are ascending levels of urgency? We ask, we make a request. But there's something that's a little bit more urgent and active than asking. It's when asking leads to seeking. Seeking's a little bit more of an urgent activity than acting because of asking because it involves physical activity. It involves some effort. And even beyond that is knocking. Now, the way that I can relate to this is by regular ongoing experiences that my wife and I have with our two boys. We have two awesome boys, and I... And I I use these stories, and you think as a pastor, I know James has had this experience where you think like, these are very normal, common experiences, but which of the stories about my kids can I share? Because I don't want these to be embarrassing to them long term. They're just life experiences. And one of the ongoing jokes around our house is that for all the things that our boys are really good at, I, they're not really good at remembering where they put things or being able to locate something that's not where they think it should be. And with you know, one of the normal routines of when my boys will get off the bus and they'll come in the house is if the six-year-old goes down to the basement, my six-year-old's really into NASCAR um, and, and race cars and, and watching them on TV. And so he's been collecting these little 164th NASCARs and he knows who the drivers are. And he, sets, he does these races in the basement. He uses Lincoln Logs to build the track. And then um, he'll set them up in order, and he keeps track of who's in what order, and I have to take a picture with my phone before I leave the house so that if any disturbance among the cars is there, he can put them back in the order that he left them. The 11-year-old the is really into like his, you know, his, his, his uh, listening to music and stuff on his, on his devices, and so he has a set of earbuds that he goes to. Almost every day when they get off the bus... When they come home, they're going to go right, the six-year-old's going to go right to where his cars were, and the 11-year-old's going to go right where he thinks his earbuds should be. Now, if there's any disturbance in the force, all of life comes to a grinding, screeching halt. And the first thing, their instinct, uh, you know, the 11-year-old will see the earbuds are not where he left them. His first thing to do is immediately assume there's a conspiracy. They've been stolen. I moved them. I took them. Because, you know, of all the things in life I have time to do, it's steal the stuff from my kids that I bought for them and keep it for myself as some sort of a sadistic pleasure. I don't do that. But their first response, you know what they do? They ask. Dad, have you seen my earbuds? They ask. Now, why don't they hesitate to ask? I don't know. I guess they just feel like I just know dad, and this is not, I know his character and his nature. This is not an encumbrance to his whole life, even though I will be honest, at times it irritates the tar out of me. I, I try, okay. Uh, no, uh, I don't, I, you know, I, honestly, son, of all the things I did today, 13th on my list was find your earbuds. 
I haven't gotten there yet. I'm on number three. Get the boys off, off of the bus, and then number four, answer their immediate questions. You know, I'm not, that's where I'm at. First thing, where, have you seen my earbuds? No. And what do I tell him to do? Go look for What does he want me to do? I go look for it for him and produce it. Now, could I do that? Yes. Have I done that sometimes? Yes. Because there's some days I'm just like, I will fight this battle tomorrow. And I know that's not good parenting. I know. You see, I'm not the, the good, good father. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to, you know, I'm the good human father, but I'm not the good, good father. Because ultimately, you know, I don't want him to be 38 years old and calling me, uh, Dad, uh, I misplaced, you know, the, the lighter for the grill. Can you tell? No, like you got to, you got to, at some point, you've got to learn to go seek. You go look for it. I did. I looked everywhere. By everywhere. Where do you mean? Well, I looked in that spot on the bed where I left it before someone stole it. Look somewhere. Eliminate that place from the, I'm trying to describe to him. And, eliminate that place from the possible and just go look for it. <sighs> you can't, just go seek. Go, go, go seek for a few minutes. I've got to get a shower. Go seek. And so then I send him to seek, and I'm like, I don't know how long he will seek, but he needs to seek for a few minutes. And then I go to take a shower, and I don't want to give too much TMI, but one of the things, like, you know, boys are like, well, Dad, what can we give you for Father's Day? Could I take one shower uninterrupted? I close the door to the bathroom when I go take a shower. My boys, my boys don't see that door as any type of barrier. All that is is just a piece of, of, of hollow wood to knock on. Because inevitably, I will get in the shower, finally get the temperature right, and I know I'm like, I got to get going quickly. Probably why I, should, I just don't grow hair because I don't have time to wash and care for it. I just shave it all off because it's faster. Because I know I've got T minus a certain. The seeking never turns up the earbuds, it just doesn't. But you know what's coming after the seeking? You know. Dad, are you in there? And now I have an integrity moment, right? I really just want to say, I want to say nothing. I just want to stand in here in these few moments. But they will persist. Dad, are you in there? No, I'm not in here. <laughs> yes. I looked everywhere and I can't find it. Will you help me? Yes, after the shower. There's ascending levels of urgency, right? There's asking. There's seeking. There's knocking. And I think in a story like that, you can get it. Like, yeah, there's... There's an ascending level of urgency, but Jesus tells us, this is how you should pray to your father when you need something. Here's my problem, and it might be yours too, and if it's not, can I make it your problem for a minute? I need to make this a problem so we can get a solution. If we go through the same sermon, it looks like Jesus is contradicting himself here because doesn't he at one point say, your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask. Huh. So there's another moment in this message, which he's already preached, which suggests, listen, God doesn't need us to inform him of what we need. In other words, we don't need to be worried that God doesn't see or he doesn't care about our material needs because he loves us. He's a good dad. He knows what we need before we even ask. So the question is then why does God want me? To, if he knows what I need, and he knows what I need before I ask, why ask? And there's a couple wrong conclusions that we could draw from this. We could assume, well, God is hesitant to give his kids 
what they need to know. He's up in heaven, white knuckling it, and like, hmm, should I, you know, should I show him where the earbuds are, or should I let him look for a while? I, you know what? I don't know. Uh, let me just sit back here and you know observe another theater of the world until he really gets ramped up about it, or. Uh, you know, maybe God needs to be persuaded. We need to wear him down. Because this is what I do as a dad. There are times when I'm like, listen, I am not giving them what they're asking for right here. Because I don't think it's for their best. They don't need it. We don't have to have it. I don't want them to think they're entitled, blah, blah, blah. Even though I can give it to them. Like I used the illustration earlier and it takes too long. But like, I, that's why I don't usually take them with me to the grocery store. It costs me three times as much. Because when I go to the grocery store, it is search and recover. When they go to the grocery store, it is just point and ask. And I, well, and my wife just says, well, why don't you just tell them no? I'm like, I do, but after the 30th, no, I am worn down, and I would rather spend money to get them to stop asking. They don't need, you know, every flavor of Prime. They don't need the 72-ounce bag of Doritos, especially if it's not on the list, because that just shuts me down. Like, there is a list. If it doesn't get on the list, it does not get in the cart. I am the only one who abides by that rule. And so I will say, unlike God, there are times when I'm like, this is not for your best. This should not be given. This isn't teaching you good life skills. But I am tired now. I am worn down. I am knowed out. And I would rather spend the $7 for a bag of Doritos than to endure another meltdown. And I know you're also disappointed in me because you don't ever give in. Sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I have fought the battle today and I'm out of bullets. And I'm outnumbered. And, I'm gonna, and I know that's not always being a good dad because I'm building into them a habit. I'm going to have to now work twice as hard the next day. Jesus is not saying you need to ask God because he's reluctant to give you what you need. You need to ask God because he doesn't know what you need. You need to just wear him down and bang on the door while God's in the shower until he gives in. That's not what, this has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with us. My asking, my seeking, my knocking isn't to change God. It's not to manipulate him or influence because here's what happens. The first thing that happens when you ask somebody when you ask a parent for anything it positions your heart to receive because as a dad it makes no sense for me to give you what you need until you're ready to receive it example you know my oldest when we started getting him shoes with laces I got sick of tying his shoes and I'm like buddy let me teach you how to tie your shoes and he would resist I know how to tie my shoes don't you and he didn't and his efforts to tie his shoes resulted in the shoes flying open. I had to tie them anyway. And I kept saying, son, let me try. You need to learn how to tie your shoes. I don't want to learn today. Now, here's the problem. He needed to receive, but he wasn't ready to ask. And I finally was just like, you know what? I'm going to let him just wait until he's good and ready. And then I remember the one time he was finally, he was finally just had, he said, dad, can you please show me how to tie my shoes? Well, now he was ready to receive. And it went a lot different. Our hearts work that way. Sometimes God waits for us to ask simply because if he'd give it to you, you wouldn't acknowledge that it came from him. You'd think you did it yourself or you just simply weren't ready to receive what he wanted to give to you or show to you or to reveal to you. Asking positions our heart to receive. You know the other thing asking does? 
It's an admission that I can't resolve this on my own and I need outside help. It's an act of humility. God, I need wisdom here because I don't know the right decision to make. God, I need, uh, I need a healing here because I can't, I can't affect the change in my body or in my mind that I need in these moments. And so God asks us, invites us, commands us to persist in prayer. Why? Because he's a giver. Because he's a giver. Because he wants to give to us. Everyone who asks receives. Now let me caution you. That doesn't mean everything you ask for, you get exactly what you asked for. It means you get a response. Now I've heard this preached before. God has three responses to our prayers. Yes, no, and wait. Yes, no, not now. And sometimes our only idea of a good father is, well, God has to give me everything that I ask for as I ask for it. You don't want a parent like that. There are things you've asked a parent for that you shouldn't have gotten. And you're probably glad now that you didn't. Aren't there things that you can look back over your life and say, I am so glad that God did not answer that prayer the way I asked it at that time. But at that time, I thought it was for my best. Example, Friday, got home from uh, traveling. We did a short day trip with Chase. We got home, and there waiting for us on the porch was, uh, we, we've broken two patio sets over the last two years uh, long story short, uh, wind and glass tabletops don't mix well. And we finally just said, no more glass tabletops. You know, we went all out, ordered something from walmart.com, and it showed up in six boxes unassembled, which was an oversight on my part. And so it was a, like six boxes, one Allen wrench, and a whole bunch of bolts. And so, you know, I looked, I'm like, mm, estimated assembly time, 40 minutes. We're on this. Well, two hours later, we were on the first chair, Chase and I. <laughs> and, and Isaiah and, and Kendra just got home from the pool, and... Uh, and they're like, oh, you know, Isaiah was like, we're so hungry. Are you going to grill for us? Like you said, you said you promised on Friday night you'd grill a steak. I was like, I will, buddy. But we don't have a place to sit and eat it yet. So we all pitched in and got it done. But by then it was about 7.30. And we're all hangry at that point. And there was no steak in the house. It had not been purchased yet. So between hangry and dinner was time. And so, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'll get what we need for dinner. And the boy was like, we'll come along. I was like, you are not coming along. <laughs> It's already steak. So I went to the grocery store, and Isaiah said, please get ribeye steak. I'm like, you know, my boys are very reasonable, right? <laughs> I get there. There's one package of ribeye steak. It's $29 for one steak. I said, absolutely not. But all the, the New York strip steak had been marked down by 50% at 730, so they could get it out of the case by the end of the day. So I'm like, awesome, New York strip steak for everybody for $14. Can't even go to, well, I was going to mention a local restaurant that's not open on Sundays, and I won't do that to you. Um, can't even go through there for that. So I was all excited, brought the New York strip steak home. I walked through the front door. The six-year-old was like, Dad, do you have the steak? I'm starving. And then I gave him my two-minute speech on why he's not starving, what starving really means. And, of course, then he looks it up on Google. He's like, Dad, I think I'm in stage one because I'm like, he's good. He's really good. So I get out the, the steak, and it's raw at this point, right? You know, I get you know, do the salt pepper thing on the front and the back and get it ready to go into the grill and I, and I clean my hands so I don't cross contaminate and I've got it on the plate to take to the grill. It's raw. Now to me, raw meat does not look appetizing. Grilled meat, delicious. Raw meat doesn't, the, the six-year-old sees, dad, what is that? Is that ribeye steak? That doesn't look like ribeye steak. I'm like, uh-oh. And I'm thinking maybe if I just say what it is differently, he'll think it's better than what it is. I said, no buddy, it's New York strips. Oh, is it better than ribeye? I said, very possibly. 
And he's like, can I have a taste? And he starts reaching his hand to the raw meat. And I pull it away. He thinks what is best for him right then and there is to eat a bite of raw New York strip steak. I have seen YouTube videos and food poisoning and raw meat eating that has gone. And I'm thinking being a good dad at this point is withholding from my son what I could give him that he thinks is for his best. And I'm saying, no, you can't have that. And in my mind, I'm saying, not now, but if you'll just wait 10 to 12 minutes and then some rest time, this will be for your best. In that moment, we disagreed about what being a good father really was. He thinks I'm being a bad father because he's hungry and I have in his hands something he thinks will meet his needs, but I know in my heart it's not ready yet. And if he has it now, it won't be for his best. It will be for his worst. And some people are like, well, let him learn by natural consequences. I don't want any more copays from patient first. I've been there enough this year. I've got two boys. We're like in the speed lane. We've got the economy plan, right? Isn't God like that with us, though, sometimes? When you filter him through that, there are times we ask him for God, like, God, why don't you bring this healing right now? God, why don't you resolve this situation right now? And it's not like it's a yes or a no. We think it is. We just think it's no. It might be like just not yet. I'm working on something that on your best day you don't understand. It's in his nature to give. The only reason why God isn't giving you that now is because he knows it's not for your best. That's the only reason why. And sometimes we don't agree. But do you trust him enough? And even in those moments where you think God has miscalculated your best, do you trust his character enough to keep asking and seeking and knocking and resting in his character to say, God, if you're not giving it to me right now, I rest in your fatherhood, knowing that it's only because it's not necessary for me right now or it's not for my best as you define it, not as me. Ask, seek, knock. You got that part? Number two, let's move more, a little more quickly. Here's the rule we were talking about. Remember what color, what, what do we call it? The golden rule. Do unto others as what? You would have them do unto you. Here's my statement on this, and I'll tell you why I, I, I chose this wording. Here's what Jesus is telling us. Here's what he expects in his kingdom. Disciples are supposed to do good to our neighbors. To do good. Not simply avoid harming them. Why do I say this? It's because at the time Jesus rolled this off of his tongue, this might have been one of the statements other than the Old Testament quotations in his sermon that people might have heard a version of it before. Because there's at least four other recorded rules from four other, from Rabbi Hillel, from Confucius. Have you heard of Confucius? Okay. And from Socrates and Aristotle. Four other ancient statements that sound very similar to the golden rule. So there's a lot of thinking that Jesus sourced this statement from others and included it in his sermon. But if you'll allow me briefly, and these, there's more on this in your, your study guide, I just want to read to you how a few of these other you know, ancient writers 
the rule that they put out. I want you to notice the difference between Jesus saying, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I want you to compare that statement to these other, these other few. Here's what Confucius said, quote, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Now that sounds similar, doesn't it? Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. How about um, Rabbi Hillel uh, in 20 BC says this, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. And then Aristotle and Socrates also had very similar statements. So Confucius, Hillel say this, what you would hate to have done to yourself, don't do it to anybody. Restrain, refrain, abstain, avoid. Jesus says this, do good, do to others. Do you hear a little bit of the difference? These guys say, just here's the golden rule. Don't harm anyone and do that by restraining, inactivity, passivity. Walk around being inactive. That thing you really want to do that you shouldn't, just don't do it. On the other hand, Jesus says, think about the good you'd like to be done unto you. And use that as your motivation and your template for how you should treat others. And go out and do it. Inject that good into the lives of your neighbors. Big difference. They teach, just avoid harm. And Jesus says, avoiding harm isn't enough. Go and do good. Do you hear the difference? This is what Jesus wanted here is to get. In his kingdom, it's not enough to just avoid harming our neighbors. Jesus is all about not harming your neighbors, but he said that's not enough because that doesn't change a culture. What changes a culture is when you initiate and you act on the good in your heart. And Jesus doubles down and makes a huge statement. If you live this way, you will actually, by default, fulfill all of the Old Testament and laws about your neighbors. If you just treat them the way you want to be treated, all the commandments in the Old Testament will naturally be fulfilled. He makes it very simple. Just do the good to others. Now, why do we call it the golden rule? Um, it came from a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, AD 222 to 235 is when he was in charge. Not a Christian at all. But he was so impressed by the comprehensiveness of this rule that he, he used it, uh, that he had it inscribed in gold on the walls of his leadership chamber. And so he had those words written in, you know, written in Greek, but had it inscribed in gold. And so it became known as the golden rule because it was what was plastered on his wall because he thought that it was so good. So, uh, you know, the takeaway from this is as Christians, it's not enough to just make sure, hey, I, I, I live by the rules and I don't break the rules. Well, how about doing good for others? Well, I am a good neighbor because I don't bother them. I don't make a lot of loud noise. I don't intrude on their privacy. Well, what good do you do for them? That's not enough to just avoid. We're supposed to do the good because that's what creates a culture. And that's the type of culture that Jesus wants inside of his kingdom. Number three. This is the part where he's, he, he gets ready to conclude the message. And you've heard me talk about this before. It's central to how we understand disciples. We teach this at Echo, and we take it from these verses. Every man, every woman, every girl, every boy on the face of the earth, we're all on a spiritual journey, but it's not one of a million different directions. It's very, very, very simple, and it's very, uh, it's very tactile. We're headed one of two directions. 
We're either, either on a journey towards Christ-likeness, of being like Jesus, or on a journey of being whatever we choose. Those are the two extremes. I can be everything that I want to be as I see fit, and I can chase after that, or I can be exactly like Jesus. This one is very broad. If you work hard enough, you can do it. If you want to be it, you can. If you want to define yourself as this way, it is your right, and anybody who tells you otherwise is too narrow. This is the wide way. Following Jesus, Jesus says, it, he uses words like it's narrow. It's hard. Only a few people choose this way. You can miss it. Few find it. You can overlook it. It can get lost in the weeds. Someone can give you bad teaching. He contrasts. And basically what he's saying is, as you're getting ready to think about what you do with this sermon, I want you to know that how you respond is going to show which path you're on. It's going to show I'm on the wide path with the broad gate that many people are on because it has no guardrails, it has no rumble strips. Anything goes, you can customize it, you can choose it. All roads lead to life is what they think. And he says this is popular. You can take any baggage, any opinion, any bias, any prejudice, any combination of life. You can construct it however you want. And everybody goes down this path. So many. Or you can hear this word and it confronts your heart and you say, I want to be on the path to life. And I recognize that it's not anything goes. I have to shed some things. I have to surrender. I have to want to be just like one man as opposed to having the freedom to choose to be like anything I want. And you understand in today's age that we live in, in Jesus' age, these words get thrown around a lot. Christianity, it's narrow. It's narrow-minded people. It's hard. It's it's, it makes you conform. Well, yeah. My unapologetic life goal is to be just like Jesus. And outside of Christianity, that sounds very narrow. And it might sound unappealing. Why? When you could be anyone you want. Pick your gender. Pick your sex. Pick your identity. Pick your career. Pick if you just work hard or you put your mind to it, you can have it. And what you find out pretty quickly is, no, you can't always. I had dreamed of being an Olympic gymnast. And my second grade teacher did me a solid. First kid in the row, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a firefighter. Oh, Jason, you'd be the best firefighter ever. Next one in the row was a girl. Her name was Amy. Amy, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, I want to be president. Amy, you're such a good leader. You'd be a great president. She got to me. Uh, Phil, what would you like to be when you grow up? I want to be an Olympic gymnast. Um, could you pick something else? Well, here's what you learn is sometimes your hard work, you still can't be exactly what you want. And then where are you? This is exactly who I've discovered that I am. Well, did you always feel that way? Well, no, but I realized when I was 13. So in other words, your feelings about who you were changed. Yeah. Do you really want an identity that's not durable? You want an identity that's going to change every time your feelings change? Don't. Wouldn't it be nice if you could root who you are on something more enduring than just how you feel in a certain season of your life? 
Well, that sounds like foolishness until you meet Jesus. And then you say, why would I want to be all these other things when I can be just like him? And what Jesus wants you to see is that there's only two responses to him and to what he teaches. The broad way, which says, I'm not going to take that as it is. I'm going to go into, there's the broad, wide way that most people take. Or there's the narrow way to it. But what he wants you to see is, yes, the way is narrow. And the gate is narrow. But it is open wide. Hear me, hear me. The narrow gate is still open wide. The narrow gate is not meant to be hidden. It's not, you don't need to get a cheat code or an access code. You don't have to beat 13 levels to find. Jesus says, yes, the way is narrow and the gate is narrow, but it's open wide. He says, you can enter. Anyone can enter. Anybody who wants to come into God's kingdom can come and just understand there's one doorway, one, one gate. It's open and it's not built out of wood. It's Jesus. He is the way. He's the truth of life. He's the gate. And the only way and the way we all come in is not some complex formula of theology and doctrine and classes and performance and exams. It's not like getting life insurance where someone has to run a full physical on you to decide how much you pay. It's already been paid. Jesus just wants you to understand if you hear my word and it confronts your heart and you recognize I fall short of these standards, what do I do? Jesus says, come in. Enter through the gate. Enter through me. I've passed all the standards. I set the standards, and you're welcome to come in by my resume, but that's the only way in. But anyone who wants to come in can enter. I want to remind you, we're all on a journey. You're on one of two. You're on a journey of Christ-likeness or being the you you decide you want to be. It's not both. There's not a third option. There's a narrow way and a broad way, not three. Two. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate, not five. Two. The narrow way leads to life. The broad way leads to destruction in the NIV, hell in the NLT. You can't choose both. You can't choose neither. As of this moment, you've made a choice. Do you want to stay on that path that you are? That's the question. But Jesus wants you to know that even though this way is narrow, and it's hard. see, this way is easy. You know why? It requires no effort. You don't have to do a thing to be on this way. This one, you're swimming against the current. Take some effort. You mean works? No, I mean surrender and cooperation to the Holy Spirit. That's the work. What do you mean by that? Just say okay every day to the Holy Spirit. When you feel him leaning on your heart, pressing in on your life, okay. Someone pops in your mind. What is that person in my mind? Maybe I should text them. Just say okay. Ah, that conversation made me feel really awful. Maybe I need to go back and just smooth some things over. Just say okay. It's those little moments. For whatever reason, I keep stepping on this thing. I'm so sorry. I'm supposed to hide these weights that keep the stand from falling everywhere. Just say okay. That's what cooperation and surrender looks like. That's the effort. This way, all you do is resist that. Just ignore it. Live your way. This way, we live like Jesus, which sounds so narrow until you meet Jesus and you say, I absolutely want to be like him because what you find is he will purify me from the inside out of my character without stripping me of the unique God-given personality that he's given me. And that becomes the filter and the prism through which that I can give him glory. Number four, I got to close. Last part. Isn't it interesting that right after Jesus says there's only two possibilities for your eternal future, life or destruction, 
One way is broad, one way is narrow. Anybody can enter this way, but it's through one gate, and that is Jesus, and anything goes this way. Isn't it interesting that right after that, Jesus said, but now watch out, there's going to be false prophets who are going to distort what I just told you. So yes, this is a message about false prophets, but it's specifically a warning to his disciples to be careful to watch out for prophets who distort what it means to be a Christian, who distort what it means as to how to get saved, and who distort and water down or change God's nature as it relates to our eternal destination. And here's what he says, carefully discern your spiritual teachers, including Phil, including James, including Zach, including Suba, including anybody, discern the character of your spiritual teachers by examining the fruit of their lives, the fruit of their teaching, the fruit of how they live, and the fruit of the people who follow them. And he gives them a couple examples. He says, first of all, a false prophet is like a wolf who disguises himself in sheep's clothing. Now, if you have a false prophet and Jesus says there is such a thing, what he means is He's telling you one thing. There is a standard of truth from which you, devi- you, which you can deviate from. Jesus is not saying everybody comes up with their own idea because you have some people like, you know, I, I don't like organized religion because they have the arrogance to make this claim that there's truth and I reject that. There is no absolute truth. Well, that in and of itself is a statement of truth in their minds. There should be no statement of truth except for my opinion that there should be none. Well, now you've elevated your opinion to a maxim that we all... No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is saying there is a standard of truth. And a false prophet, all they do is have to deviate from it by one degree. That makes them false. What Jesus is telling you is that not everybody who will come to you or stand in a pulpit and say, I speak on God's behalf, is actually speaking accurately on God's behalf. And he says it's important for you to know the difference. It's of eternal importance. And so he says, well, how do I know the difference? Discernment. Well, how do I get discernment? Well, he's kind of already told us. We have to judge rightly. Matthew 7, the first part we studied. Well, what if I don't know how to judge? Well, then what do you do? I ask, I seek, and I knock, and I ask God, help me understand, is this person that's teaching me, Lord, help me understand whether they're teaching me rightly or not. Well, here's the the third thing you need to do. Read your Bible for yourself. How can you possibly know? If what I'm teaching you is credible and accurate, if you don't have some working knowledge of the Bible yourself. It's like when I show up to a Little League game as a coach, trust me, they give me a two-sheet PDF document on the rules. I read them inside and out. I'm responsible to know them. You know what always worries me is when we meet the umpire for the evening, the umpire says, now what rules do you guys play by? How can he possibly discern the outcome of the game if he's never read the rule book? He's just depending on me. And guess what? I'm going to, depending on my character, I might shade what the rules actually say to his ignorance to give myself an advantage. And how would he know? He's never read the rules. Why do I make, make the effort to give you guys study guides? So that you can go back through and fact check your teachers. So that you can see and you can discern if we're telling you the truth. You have to discern our lives. I don't have time to go into those today. There's some more in your notes. You need to look at, Jesus is saying you need to look at the lives of your teachers. He's saying now a false prophet doesn't always know they're a false prophet. They might be good intended, but they've deviated from the truth. In other words, outwardly they might look like a sheep and harmless and bald and wear a nice shirt and occasional vest. But inside, they're destructive. And they might not even know it from the outside in. And then he gives you the illustration of the fruit. He's like, look, trees don't have the ability to disguise themselves. 
Good trees can't produce bad fruit. So look at the fruit. And if it's good, you can trust the tree. If it's bad, don't eat from it. Because in the end, it's going to be cut down and cast into the fire because it's no good. We don't keep trees around that can't produce. What he's saying is that, you know, if a tree starts producing bad fruit and only bad fruit, that can't redeem itself. It's not going to be useful anymore. Trees that produce good fruit are useful. and They're beneficial. And he says, it's important for you as disciples when you're thinking about how to respond to this. Don't get caught up by some false prophet who's going to come along later on. And and here's what he says to watch out for. What, What he's telling you to watch out for. Prophets who tell you that the narrow way is broader than it is and that the broad way is narrower than it is. Watch out for prophets who will distort what I just told you. They might tell you that all roads lead, that there's not two paths. We're all. If I just live a good life, I learn this theology sometimes at funerals. And I hear people, sometimes people that I know get up and eulogize someone who we don't know about their relationship with God. Or they'd say, I don't, they had no saving relationship with God. And they'll say, they're up in heaven right now. And, you know, they love to, to tinker around on their old cars. And I know, you know, Uncle Leroy's up in heaven right now tinkering around on some old cars. And I'm thinking... Really, do you know that? I'm not trying to preach someone in heaven or hell. And I I know enough to know that a funeral is not the time to to take the microphone and say, I know you're all grieving today, but let's dive into the theology of what was just said this morning about Uncle Lee, right? We don't do that then and there, right? But we're not in that this morning. Sometimes that stuff comes out of our hearts. I'm thinking somewhere along the line, this person, their best intentions, just thought all roads lead to heaven. And we think that they're in heaven. Why? Not because of, I'm not saying that they are or they aren't, but here, it's the basis of that person's heart is, I know Uncle Leroy's in heaven working on cars, not because I know he had a relationship with Jesus, but he was just such a good guy and loved to work on cars. And that was, that was his access to heaven. That's not how we get in, guys. It's through Jesus. Pastor, that's a real downer at 12. I'm not trying to be a real downer. I'm just saying we have to look in our hearts. Don't you hear things like that? We have to be careful about the conclusions that we draw about these two ways, these two gates. He's warning you, to people who make coming to Jesus much more difficult, they make it hard for seekers to find Jesus. Well, yes, you might have prayed and you might have confessed and you might believe in Jesus, but if you haven't also then been baptized in water or done these steps or gone through this class or produced this type of fruit. If you, how, if you vote this way, you might not be a Christian. Wait a minute. My voting record should be a byproduct of my relationship with Jesus, but it is not my resume to get into heaven. Hello? Jesus is not gonna be like, God's not gonna be like, you know what, Phil, I see your name on here. Uh, you knew you needed to be saved. You knew Jesus could save you. You asked him to save you. He saved you. You submitted to my Lordship. Mm. 1988, let's look at your, oh, you, you voted on the third page on Proposal 23, whether or not we should borrow money for the landfill. You got that one wrong. Sorry, buddy. But false teaching says that all those things have to do with, you know what, they, they make it harder and harder and harder to find the gate. Because it says, don't think about the gate, look at yourself. Well, the more I look at myself, the less optimistic I am about that I'm going to get into heaven because I look at me and say, not good enough. Jesus more than enough. And in him and through him and only through him, I have access to God. And that gate is wide open. But Jesus says you need to keep your ears open. You need to keep your hearts open. You need to carefully discern what you're taught. Why? Because it matters for your eternity. I don't expect you to just swallow everything that you hear on a Sunday. I want you to hear 
I want you to think. I want you to think critically. And I want you to be aware of what's going on inside of your heart as you hear the Lord's word taught to you. And then we all have to decide, right now is that part in the sermon where, how am I going to respond to what I heard? Some of you are like, I've already gotten around that. I just didn't listen today, so I'm good. Okay, so you have a nice afternoon ahead of you. But if you have ears to hear and you heard, think. Think together with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, how many times in the sermon does he say consider? Notice. Observe. Look at. He invites his listeners to look at birds, flowers, sons and fathers, nature, life. He invites them to think all through the sermon. And then he gets to a point and says, now that you've thought about it, it's time to respond. What are you going to do with what you heard today? Are you going to be like the wise man and the foolish man? And we'll look at them next week. Both of them had beachfront property. One of them, both of them had storms. One of the houses survived. Why? Because of what he did with what he heard. Sneak, uh, spoiler alert. Jesus says, the wise man hears what I said and does it. Foolish man heard what I said, didn't do it. Which one are you? Let's pray together this morning. Worship team, will you come? See, now that is the conclusion. When worship team comes, we know, point of no return. Some of you are like, no, it's another 11 minutes, pastor, I know. But just hang around for a second. What are you going to do with what you heard today? I don't think you remembered everything that I said today, and that's okay. That's hard to do. What were the points where you really recognized that the Holy Spirit was leaning in on something in your heart? And wasn't a moment where you felt God saying, I'm proud of you, daughter. Because you remember six months ago, two years ago, five years ago, if you, when you heard this, you struggled in that area. And look how much you've grown through your cooperation and surrender of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I want you to feel like Super said earlier, I want you to hear your dad. These are not just meant to condemn us. These are meant to affirm us too. When we can say, yes, I'm still a work in progress, but I'm growing in this area of asking and seeking and praying or, or knocking. Or even in how I pray, I'm not as uptight anymore. If I'm not getting the answers I think I should need, I see myself being more patient with the Lord and more trusting of his fatherhood in my life. Receive that affirmation from God today. That means you're saved and you're in that process of him growing you. If we're honest, we probably also see areas where some of these things confront us and we say, that's not an area that I excel in or that's an area of my life that needs development. Well, how do we respond to that? We, we put that before the Lord and we say yes and okay and we cooperate and we surrender to the Holy Spirit. And there's also the very real possibility. In fact, it's my hope that there are at least some here, some watching online, some listening on podcast, who the honesty of your heart says, I have not entered God's kingdom through Jesus yet. I'm sure that I haven't. But in this moment, there's a couple that I'm very aware, I'm feeling inside of me an awareness of the fact that I'm guilty and not right before the Lord. I'm guilty of sinning against him. I'm very, I got a handle on that right now. I can almost feel it inside of me. And I'm hearing this message today that that gate is still open wide. And I understand that it's narrow. I can't come in any old way that I want. I can't kind of write up an agreement and ask God to, I can't come to a negotiating table with God over what this looks like. It's his terms. But let me be very clear about how simple these terms are. I don't want it to be more complicated than what it is. What the Bible teaches us is that the way through the gate, our part is to believe and to repent. You just simply have to be, believe means to be deeply convinced. You have to be deeply convinced of three things. That you need to be saved. You can't save yourself. You need to be saved. 
by somebody other than you. Secondly, you need to be convinced that Jesus and only Jesus can save you. That he has the ability to save you because he paid your debt for you himself and is waiting to apply that payment to your account with his father. And if you believe that, you just simply have to believe then that he will save you if you ask. This is a great way to put this into practice. He didn't save you before you asked because you weren't ready to receive. He doesn't force that on you. But if your heart is ready to receive salvation, you just ask and he will save you. And you bring to him your willingness and your readiness. I heard someone say it this way, this way. Your willingness and your courage to repent. Repent means to turn completely away from. And also it means to have a change of mind, a change of heart. I know that you're also bringing to Jesus a reality that the way I view myself and my life in you, I've had a change of heart about how I see things. And I need to turn away at my current way of seeing things, that I'm, I'm the source of everything and that I can do life my way. And I want to turn to you, that, that you're the Lord and I'm your servant. And I'm going to yield myself to living under your leadership and lordship. Repent and believe. So those are my questions. Do you know you need to be saved? Do you think Jesus can save you? Do you believe he will save you if you ask? And is today the day of repentance for you? If your answer to those things are yes, here's all you need to do. Confess those things to Jesus. That's it. A simple confession of those things. He will hear you. There's no formula. There's nothing you have to repeat. There's no card to sign. There's no intake form. That's it. There's very simple prayers in the New Testament. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me in paradise. Lord, save me, I perish. Very simple prayers. Jesus heard them all. He saved them. You can pray a simple prayer. Right along those lines, Jesus, I need to be saved because of my sin. I know you can save me. So Jesus, please save me. I am ready to receive forgiveness over my life. This prayer is a confession of my willingness and courage to repent from from the lifestyle that says, I'm going to do whatever I want, however I want, by whatever standards I choose. And I'm turning towards, I have a change of heart about what it means to say. But rather than that, I want to be just like you, Jesus. You're the Lord, and I want to be like you. So I receive salvation. Thank you for saving me. Heavenly Father, we just, we thank you for being a good father. We celebrate you and honor you today. We are not in any way discouraged. We are more encouraged to bring to you, to ask, to seek, to knock, because you're our dad. It's not an inconvenience to you. It's not an encumbrance on your lifestyle. You don't want us to feel like you're the dad who's going to snap if we ask the wrong question or that you're too busy to bother with us. We're reminded that you're a good father, so we can trust you with our asking, our seeking, and our knocking, and we can trust, we can entrust the responses to you knowing that your response is anchored on what you think and what you know is best for us. So we rest in that today. Help us to do the good, not just to avoid the bad, but to do the good to our neighbors that we would want to have done in our own life. And help us to change this culture that we live into to being the type of community that you can be proud of and that you can inhabit. Lord, we need your help to be able to discern right teaching from inaccurate teaching. We want to be wise followers of you. And this morning we are convinced 
of the path that we're on. Every one of us in this moment has answered for ourselves. And I thank you for, even though outside of these walls, it might not be the popular choice. Inside of this faith community, we, it is the popular choice to be on that narrow road together with brothers and sisters who are on a mutual journey of Christ-likeness. We thank you for that. Be glorified in us. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.